Hi. If you enjoy Law to Fact, I want to tell you about another podcast I host. It's called Legal Tensor, and with the same blend of fun and substance as Law to Fact, guests join me to discuss timely legal issues. It's a great way to gain insights and to help you start a conversation on legal stuff that matters. It's available on all the usual podcast platforms. And while you're at it, if you could subscribe or like either of our podcasts, it would be super helpful. And now here's an episode of Law to Fact. Hello, I'm Leslie Garfield Tenzer, and this is Law to Fact. Today we are talking civil procedure. First, a few disclaimers. Disclaimer one this is just an overview. You are always responsible for understanding the case law that supports any rule of law. Disclaimer number two. Always remember you take the professor, not the course. So if by some chance you are listening to this and I am not your professor, keep in mind that I may emphasize and even include or not include areas of the law that are different from your professor. In this episode, Professor Michael Mushlin explains the Erie Doctrine. Professor Mushlin first provides an overview of Erie and other relevant case law, including Hannah v. Plummer, and then goes through an analysis of an Erie problem, explaining how to choose the appropriate law to apply when the plaintiff files a civil claim in federal court. He provides an interesting commentary and background and literally walks me through the House of Erie step by step. Professor Mushlin's commentary, insights, and dare I say love of Erie make this discussion interesting and beneficial. So here's my discussion with Professor Mushlin. So what is the Erie Doctrine? Well, the Erie Doctrine is a very mis- it's, it's very mysterious. Actually, there's a Harvard Law Review uh, that did a, did a cartoon on Erie, which called it the creepy house of Erie. No one wants to go there. <laughs> and I think it really, that, that really spoke to me. It sort of captured what it is. And, and, it, and I, there's several reasons that it's really tough for anybody to get a grasp on it, anybody understand it. Nobody understands it. There's probably more been written about Erie than any other topic. Not, Not even professors? law professors That's understand what I mean. that, and the Supreme Court of the United States doesn't understand it. And I and so it's really it's a hard subject for students to get at. And let me tell you why. Just a couple of reasons why. One is it's mysterious because it has to do with federal courts deciding state causes of action. And everybody thinks. Logically, federal courts are for federal law. But here's federal courts dealing with, with, with state issues. It's mysterious because the real key to Erie is, in dis, is, is indeterminate and impossible to ever get a handle on. And, and that is sub, the difference between substance and procedure. So students are in a civil procedure class and they discover what, 10 weeks into the semester, that nobody really knows what procedure is, huh. as opposed to substance. It's, it's mysterious because the House of Erie was created by the Erie Court which in 1938. I think it's about 75. The Erie Doctrine is named after the Erie Railroad versus Tompkins case. It's a case 75 years ago. And an opinion by Justice Brandeis, which overturned an opinion by Justice Story, which had been on the books for 80 years, and which told you how to handle all of these diversity cases. So it's not just a case that deals with one discrete area. It's a case that deals with a huge amount of the federal doctrine, the docket. And that case, this, this is another reason it's mysterious, that the Swift case said that law mm-hmm. is not common law. 
Oh. <laughs> <laughs> law as Congress used it is not common law. That's overturned by Justice Brandeis in the Erie case, saying that that's wrong. Law includes includes the common law of a state, and he does it in a case which cries out for relief. It's a case where a guy loses his arm, mm-hmm. a young man, 27 years old, back in the Depression where he was the sole support for his family, hmm. a working-class guy who needs both arms to earn a, a livelihood, who loses his arm because of the pure negligence of the Erie Railroad. Everybody agrees the Erie Railroad is negligent. You get Brandeis, who's the people's lawyer, saying he's not going to recover because he can't apply a, a federal common law rule. He has to follow state tort law, which said this wasn't, they wouldn't use, res, I'm now in your area, they wouldn't use res ipsa loquitur. Right. Um, and can I just interrupt? I have yeah. one quick question because I am not skilled. So it is really a mess. Yeah. yeah. So he sued in state court. He sued in federal court because he could get to federal court, but not because there was a federal law that helped him. He could get to federal court because he was from Pennsylvania and the Erie Railroad was from New York, and he could get into federal court for diversity jurisdiction. And he goes in federal court in the Southern District of New York before this lovely judge who was a great friend of Eleanor Roosevelt, hmm. who was just a sweet, nice guy, didn't know law, and he is his first case. <laughs> his name is Nussbaum. And he, he says uh, Pennsylvania common law said that you can't, since this, this Tompkins was, was injured when a train uh, by the Erie Railroad failed to secure a door on a refrigerator car, Okay. He's walking on a path near the train, which everybody in the town used, late at night. The door is swinging open and it severs his arm. Wow. The Erie Railroad says, well, we should have secured the train, but we weren't grossly negligent. Mm -hmm. And under Pennsylvania common law, um, they had to be grossly negligent. So it goes before this sweet guy, and they go into federal court because of diversity jurisdiction, because they want to get away from the Pennsylvania law. Oh, I get it. So they want to say to the judge, but that's not law. That's just common law. You can do the right thing. And this guy's the sweetest guy in the world. He says, of course, we'll do the right thing. And he gets $30,000, which in today's money is like a half a million bucks. Right. The Supreme Court, Brandeis, who's the people's lawyer, overrules that. Oh, wow. Because he says that what that nice guy did at the district court level was... To displace Pennsylvania law. Okay. You see? Yes. What that nice guy did was what we call, what I call in my class, juster justice. <laughs> and and the only reason the case is in federal court is because of diversity jurisdiction. Right. So basically what Brandeis said is if you're in court because of diversity jurisdiction, you can't apply general federal common law. See, see, this is really tough for first-year students well, I can get. see it. I'm, so I'm going I'm I'm to repeat back to you. And yeah, sure. yeah, so yeah. the guy's arm is severed. Yeah. He lives in Pennsylvania. Yeah. The accident happens in Pennsylvania. Spain, yeah. But the defendant's place of business is New York. Right. So he and sues so in Manhattan. He sues. He can sue in, he can sue in Pennsylvania. There are four places he could sue. Okay. So he can sue in Pennsylvania. State, state court. court. He can sue in federal court in Pennsylvania. Exactly right. He can sue in New York state court. That's right. And he can sue in New York federal jurisdiction. That's federal right. court. He <laughs> picks to sue in Pennsylvania federal court. That's and the right. reason he 
picks federal is because it's a diversity jurisdiction that gets him into the federal level. That's right. And the reason he does it in Pennsylvania is because he Not wants... Oh, and he, he picks he New York. A, he fed, goes to Manhattan. He goes to Manhattan. And the reason he picks Manhattan court, is he federal f- court, is because he wants to get away from the Pennsylvania... He wants to get as far from Pennsylvania as he can get. Right, the state law. Okay. And he wants a, a, a New York federal judge who will be less likely to apply Pennsylvania right. common law. So and now, he gets it. And he gets that at the trial level. And he gets that, and he wins. And, and he he's wins? A, it's a, a young lawyer just out of law school takes the case. Oh, wow. Erie uh, uh, Railroad is represented by Davis Polk. He wins, and they take it to the United States Supreme Court. They take it to the circuit, and they go to the United States Supreme Court. And the issue before the United States Supreme Court is in a diversity jurisdiction case. Yes. What law applies? That's right. That's right. That's and, right. And so the Supreme Court says what? Before this case, they had said if the pens, if the state law is not a statute. If it's only common law, you don't have to apply it. You can apply if it's not good, if it's not good common law in your view. So the judge has discretion to decide what law to apply? What common law? What common law to apply? apply. Well, the judge doesn't have discretion. Theoretically, the judge should look in the sky where the common law is and find the right common law. And if Pennsylvania state courts had looked in the sky and found the wrong common law, you didn't have to follow it. And what Nussbaum said is the Pennsylvania looked in the sky and said, well, you're only going to be negligent for severing his arm if you're grossly negligent. Nussbaum looked in the sky and said, that can't be right. As long as they didn't exercise reasonable care, right? there should be uh, recovery. And so he instructed the jury on the general federal common law because he felt he wasn't bound to apply Pennsylvania common law. And Brandeis said that was sweet. But Brandeis didn't say it was sweet. Yeah. Brandeis said that's unconstitutional. Okay. What he did is unconstitutional. And what he did is what federal judges have been doing for 80 years in every diversity case. So looking in the sky is unconstitutional. Is that correct? <clears throat> looking in the sky when it's a state claim and when it's state substantive law is unconstitutional. Why it's unconstitutional doesn't tell us. Okay, it so could be a, a separation of powers. Right. It could be federalism. It could be both. He never says. So I think I understand now. And so basically what you're saying, and I may be wrong, so yeah, you tell yeah. me, is that when a plaintiff chooses to sue in yeah. federal court yeah. because of diversity jurisdiction, where it would be in state court Except if there the wasn't the diversity, That's right. state law applies. Well, that's what a reasonable person would think, but it's not that simple. Okay. It's not that, it's not that simple. Uh, the, it's not that simple because the Supreme Court has said you can't be a state court if you are a federal court. And so even though you're applying state law, you're a federal court applying state law. Right. Not a state court applying state law. Right. And so if they never really say it in this way, but if it is procedural. Yes. Then that's what a federal court does. Okay. And if if Congress said you can go to federal court for diversity, yeah. you still have to be a federal court. And so you have your own way of doing things. You can do it your own your own way of 
processing cases. So you can say it's going to be on white paper. Right. You can say, you know, uh, you can have your own procedural rules. But you can't apply the substantive law, your own view of the substantive law. So it would be simple. So this is where it gets so mysterious. It would be very simple to apply Erie after Erie by saying, just apply state law. Right. Then you, you've got a diversity case. You're, you're, you're in federal court, but you just apply state law. Yeah, just pretend you're a state court. Just pretend you're a state court. And that's how they started out doing it. Uh-huh. They've had a series of cases to try to figure out what are we going to do after Erie. And the first case they had was a case that the students all read called Guarantee Trust, and it was by Frankfurter, and he said exactly what you said. He said it shouldn't be any different. The results should be exactly the same if you go to federal court as, as if you go to state court. Okay. So you just, you just follow, you just follow uh, state law if it's outcome determined. Okay. If it's outcome determinative. And what, what does because outcome determinative said, mean? Well, nobody, well. <laughs> <laughs> That's why it's not good for students. <laughs> I don't think this is going to help. <laughs> but we'll see. <laughs> it's, so, so, um, so, but that became, then the next case came along and they just decided they really can't do that because, because they can't pretend they are what they're not. Okay. You know, you know yes. what I mean? Yes. They can't, they can't pretend. Like my students go to federal court to see and they meet Judge Smith, Lisa right. Smith. So I, I talk to them in terms of that. I say, you know, Lisa Smith can't pretend she's not Lisa Smith. Mm-hmm. I mean, she is a federal judge. She's got not it. a state judge. Right. And so even though she gets diversity cases, the Supreme Court has said she can continue to to function as a federal judge. So if you could, it would be very simple if you could say, procedure is for the federal courts, right. even if they have diversity cases. But if they have diversity cases, substance, is they use substantive state law. And the problem with that yeah. is nobody knows where procedure ends and substance begins. Okay, so... So, the tap... Yeah, go ahead. Yeah, no. So, I don't mean to interrupt. No, 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 This no, is perfect because yeah. it leads me to my next question for yeah. you. Yeah. So, as yeah. I understand it... Yeah. If you have diversity jurisdiction by virtue of the fact that one party's principal place of business or domicile or whatever it is, is one state yeah. and others is another state, then yeah. you have the option of, of being in those four different courts, right? Right, right. right. If you pick a federal court, yeah. then the federal court has to apply procedure of federal court law, a federal court procedure, right? Federal rules of civil procedure. And state substantive law of the state that would govern the issue had you filed in state court. Yeah. Okay. So so now the issue becomes, as you said, we don't know where one ends and one begins. How does a student figure out where one ends and one begins? Or is that not something that can be figured yeah, out? Yeah, yeah. I think the way, I mean, that really is the task. I mean, the task is to figure out what a federal court can do without infringing on states' rights. And the state law that can govern in a diversity case. That's the task. Okay. What a student can't do is just to make a conclusion that something is procedural and therefore it's okay to apply the federal law and something is substantive, therefore, because those terms are only, those terms have no meaning. Okay. Other than as conclusions. And even as conclusions, they're not even that helpful anymore. So what one has to do is one has to use the framework that the Supreme Court has given us for figuring out these problems. 
And the way I approach it is to say, the first thing one has to do is one has to make sure, this is how I use the house analogy. Okay. One has to make sure that there is either a potential conflict between federal and state law or an actual conflict. If there is either of those two things, then one has is in the House of Erie. Okay. 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 And then I say, then you got to figure out how to get out. Okay. But you don't go to a spooky place that you don't need to be in, right? That's brilliant. So, so, so if there's no, and, and I've seen cases, I have seen exams where people are writing about Erie where there's no conflict, and so that's an example of being in a house that you don't need to be in. So step so one is, is there a conflict or a potential conflict? And is that conflict a vertical conflict of law? Is it a conflict between a state law rule and a federal rule? And then I say, I then make an analogy to physics. I say, just as two bodies cannot occupy the same space at the same time, two rules that are in conflict cannot occupy the same cannot control the same decision so you have to have you have to prefer one over the other right it's the first step is to determine whether there is a conflict or a potential conflict of a vertical nature okay which is to say a conflict between a state rule and a federal rule and i say a conflict or a potential conflict and that'll become important in a second the next step so now you're in the house, okay. and you got to get out of the house. Okay. And just taking the, the metaphor, I then say there are two rooms to the house. One, okay. And but these rooms are named after the, the major case in this area, which is called Hannah versus Plummer. One, is Hannah, one room is Hannah 1, which has a different analytical structure than the other room, which is Hannah 2. Okay. Okay. The, <laughs> This is great. Yeah, no, this is great. This is great. So the the next step then is to determine. So we're in the. the, I call that the foyer. Okay. Now you then say, well, what's the nature of the conflict? So on one hand, there's always the state rule. Right. And that's the three sources of law. One is you can have a statute. Mm -hmm. The other is you can have a rule, Mm -hmm. like in the federal rules of civil procedure. Third is you can have a common law, and it's important to identify which is the source of that state law, which is the source of the federal law. It's much more important for the, what the source of the federal law is okay. than the state law because the source of the federal law tells you what room you're in. Okay. Okay. Now, if the source of the federal law is a statute mm-hmm. or is a federal rule of civil procedure, not a common law federal law, right. like in Erie. In yes. Erie, it was a common law. But in Hannah, for example, it was a federal rule of civil procedure. In Hannah, the rule, what the the conflict was between a state law, which said, if you were suing the executor of an estate for a tort, you had to hand the summons and complaint personally to the executor. Okay. Under federal rule of civil procedure, you can commence a case by serving a defendant through substituted service. You don't have to do actual service. Okay. Okay, so there the conflict was between a state rule right. and a federal rule of civil procedure. That puts you in in Hannah one room. Okay. 
Erie, the conflict was between a state substantive law, common law of tort, and a federal substantive common law rule of tort. That puts you in Hannah 2. Got it. Okay? In Hannah 1, there's only two questions. Is the federal rule of civil procedure valid, and every federal rule of civil procedure has been held to be valid? Mm -hmm. I mean, there's been none that have been held to be invalid. Not everyone has been held to be valid. More important is, does it apply to this case? The case before. Does it apply to the issue in this case? Okay. In Hannah, it did. Mm -hmm. And if it applies, a state law, and a federal rule of civil procedure that is valid, Mm -hmm. and that actually applies to this this issue, Mm -hmm. then you simply apply it. Then you're out of the house. Okay. However... The Supreme Court has said you got to be really careful about does it apply because they don't want to have federal rules of civil procedure trumping state law willy-nilly. So, so you have to determine not just uh, is there a federal rule that appears to be on point, but you have to look really carefully to make sure that it actually is on point and occupies the field. That's why I say this is an, a conflict or an apparent conflict. Okay. And the reason for that is there have been a number of Supreme Court cases that have struggled to limit the application of federal rules to the precise situations that they deal with so as not to conflict. And I could go into the details of that, but right. I don't know that no, we need yeah, to. No. Okay. So just to summarize, Hannah, one is there's a conflict between a state rule and a federal rule of civil procedure or a federal statute. They both have to be valid. Either has to be valid and has to actually occupy this field, and you've got to really look carefully to make sure that it does actually occupy the field. If it does, then there's no balance. You don't worry about whether the person chose federal oh, court to get the federal uh-huh. rule okay, because now you're in the supremacy clause. Right. Okay. And 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 you just automatically apply. But we haven't talked about. There's two federal statutes on point here: the Federal Rules of Decision Act and the Enabling Act. Okay. And the federal the problem is called by the Rules of Decision Act. But you avoid that problem if you're under the Enabling Act because of the supremacy clause of the United States Constitution. Got it. Okay. Yeah. Now the harder. Well, I don't even know if it's harder. You actually let's say you do that and you find this the the, the federal rule is not applicable. I said you're out of the house. That's not quite right. You're not, you're not sure that you're out of the house. You may then have to open a side door to go into Hannah 2. Okay. Hannah 2 is reserved for situations where the conflict is between a state law and a federal common law rule. Right. That does apply. Now you have to decide. Wh- and that was Erie. Right. Erie was between Pennsylvania state law and federal common law. Got it. Okay. Now... Well, I might you go to Hannah 1 and Hannah 2, which is confusing to students. Okay. You might go to Hannah 1 because it looks like the, the conflicts are between a federal rule of civil procedure. You then go to the Hannah 1 room, room and you find that it doesn't really apply. But what does apply is a, an emanation, a federal policy, okay. a federal common law okay. approach that's not mandated by the rule but is the way the federal courts operate. I see. Like for right? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So now you have to go into room two. Right. Hannah two room. And in the Hannah two room you have to do a balance you have to do this is what the Supreme Court has called the relatively unguided eerie choice of law issue, which I call Hannah two. 
it's somewhat indeterminative, I guess is what I'm okay. saying. I mean, it's it's a very sophisticated, very subtle, okay. I guess subtle is the word I'm looking for, okay. uh, approach. And what you do in this room is you got to really basically decide. Here I refer students to Harlan's concurrence in Hannah. You have to decide whether this conflict is between a, a state law rule that is designed to regulate human conduct outside of the courtroom. Because you're in federal court not to get the benefit of a better federal law regulating human conduct. You're there just to get a fair forum, not a better law, uh-huh. you see. Uh-huh. And so, so that's... So there you're being... That's good faith in a way, right? That you're doing it for a more genuine purpose? You're not trying to beat the system? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Okay. You, you, you're trying to honor the, the rights okay. to regulate the conduct of its own citizens okay. in areas that are be the, the areas, not that are beyond federal control, but that the federal Congress hasn't decided to take control over, and that the federal courts shouldn't get involved in just because they have a diversity case. Okay, they have to kind of honor. It's honoring state law. Okay, so on the one approach, it's honoring state law. On the other, the other side is making sure that federal courts can really function in a legitimate way as federal courts. Right. So then you have to look at that. It's like, you remember Ronald Reagan gave a speech once about Poland when the Iron Curtain was coming down, where he said to Russia, let Poland be Poland. Uh-huh. It's like, I think that, that in this, in Hannah too, when you're looking at the, the federal interest in the federal rule, you say, is this something about inherently in the nature an essential the, the terms the courts use is an essential characteristic of the federal courts. Okay. Like, for example, disputed fact issues should be mm-hmm. decided by juries. Right. Not because the Seventh Amendment commands it, but just the way we do things. Right. It's important to us. You see? Uh-huh, I do. So, you look at the state, intri- the, why the state law is the state law. Does it regulate conduct, or does it tell you how you do something to effectuate that right? Okay. And you look at this this federal interest in the federal law is an essential characteristic, and then that's the, so you do those two things. That's called a bird balance, right? And then and then you you leaven that with a with an outcome determinative, a sophisticated outcome determinative analysis, which is essentially did the plaintiff go to federal court mm-hmm. because there's diversity of citizenship and he just wanted to be in a place that wouldn't favor the home state guy. Or did he go to federal court to get the benefit of that federal law and to displace that state law? Hmm. And one way you look at that is you look at the outcome, use the outcome determinative test in the following way. You don't ask, if I choose this federal law now over the state law when I'm making the decision, will this affect the outcome? Because it usually will. Yeah, of course. You look at when the plaintiff in her head decided to go to federal court, was she doing it because she thought this would determine the outcome? Okay. I Oh, interesting. Okay. So was she being manipulative? Was she just trying, was she trying to get around this state? Beat the oh, system. To be, yeah. Yeah, in a way, beat the system. Okay. Yeah. Oh, that's so cool. Got it. Okay. All right. So you got it. I think I, I do. I think <laughs> yeah. I understand it. Okay. Well, thank you very, very much. Well, thank Wonderful. you. Thanks. It was fun. Right. It was Thanks. fun. Okay, so that's my discussion with Professor Michael Mushlin on the Erie Doctrine. Hope it was helpful. It certainly helped me. And thanks to www.bensound.com for the music. See you next time on Law to Fact. <laughs>